everybody and welcome to another episode from our special podcast series rounding out the 22 season as we look through some of the highlights of the year that you are voting for in the Motorsport Magazine Awards. I'm Chris Medland and to look back at the candidates for team of the year, I'm joined by a team boss who has overseen huge success for Audi in multiple categories and one of the stars of F1's own coverage this year. Alan McNish, great to have you with us. It's great to be here and also uh, on a cold winter day, but talking about uh, things that when it was hot and sunny in the races around the world. Yeah, it was a lot warmer, wasn't it, at most of the Grand Prix. Uh, and Lawrence Barreto, thank you for joining too, mate. Thank you very much. Um, that warm weather seems like so long ago, doesn't it? It seems it only ended a few weeks ago. I know it, it, it moves moves quickly. We're already dreaming of pre-season testing and warmer climates. But uh, Alan, I'm going to start with you. I mean, you've been the managing director of Audi's Formula E efforts, but also hold the title of Director of Coordination of Motorsport Activities for the Audi yeah. Group, which rolls off the tongue yeah. nice and easily. But what does that <laughs> Very easily. <laughs> well, basically, within Audi, we've got quite a lot of motorsport activities because obviously you think about Audi itself and you've got the customer racing. We've had sports cars in the past. Uh, we also have got, uh, obviously, Formula E and DTM. But as well as that, within Audi Group, there's also Ducati and Lamborghini. They're completely daughter companies of the parent. And so uh, within that is just to make sure there's the correct synergies between the different brands. Uh, you know, for example, Ducati is now venturing into Moto E. And that's an area that we've had a lot of expertise in the past with our electrification from Le Mans, but also very much in Formula E. And at the same time, when I think about the whole Volkswagen group, crikey, then there's a lot of different racing opportunities there. So it's to try to align all of these things and make sure that uh, we try to stay one step ahead of the game. Well, you speak of aligning different things. It would be remiss of me if I didn't ask. Does that involve you helping with plans for the 2026 F1 entry? <laughs> I'll tell you, it's been a busy, very busy last 18 months. Certainly the last uh, 2022 has been pretty much hectic, like I've never seen before. And to think the 26 is still quite a long way away, but it's only around the corner, I think 39 months until the first race. Not that we're counting it in. <laughs> but uh, yes, you know, from uh, being involved now for over 20 years with Audi, and uh, this is part of that progression, and it's an exciting time. And I don't think there's anybody within the company that's not looking forward to that first race in 2026. Yeah, it will be very, very exciting to see. We'll uh, we'll keep our eyes peeled for what you might uh, have to do with it. But uh, you mentioned how long you've been with Audi. I mean, uh, on your CV, you've got three Le Mans victories. You've got a season in Formula One, of course, with Toyota in 2002. So you definitely yeah. know the challenges that different teams face in motorsport, don't you? Yeah. yeah, certainly. It was interesting you mentioned Toyota there because obviously I, I was with Toyota at Le Mans. And then jumping into Formula One, it was a completely different game, just in terms of the personnel had to multiple by three to be able to produce a Formula One program. Now, admittedly, that was 20 years ago. That's when budgets were unlimited. It's when engines were unlimited. You would use three engines through the course of a Formula One weekend. Now you're looking at basically that number over a season. So there's a lot of changes. However, what was very clear to me was when I moved from Toyota at the end of 2002 to Renault, for the uh, third driver, remember they had the Friday testing at that point and also the reserve role there. My first lap in the Renault around Barcelona, first ever lap, was quicker than my qualifying lap in the Toyota. And so the difference between, I would say, people that are fighting in the middle, where, I have to be honest, Toyota were um, towards the end of the season at best, um, to where you're fighting to race victories is a huge gulf. And I don't think anybody can underestimate that sort of level and now I think it's even more so in Formula One at the top. 
Yeah, there's some some big, big splits. And it looks like a, a tough job for some people to run a team. And Lawrence, I'm going to move on to you now because you've not run a team yet, but, you know, maybe one. No, day. not yet. <laughs> um, but you've been right in the heart of things working for Formula One this year. How's the 2022 season been for you? I know on paper it probably looks like a, a pretty dull year and that Max has obviously dominated and it's been the same winners and the same teams dominating. But actually, if you look on a, at it on a race-by-race race basis, I think it's been a, a, a really good season. You've had some great races of drivers coming through the field. You've had some new winners. You've had teams fighting at different points in the pecking order as well. And actually, the racing generally has been better. These 2022 cars do seem to follow a lot closer and that's allowed some better racing. We saw even in Brazil that really good battle between George and, and Max. We've seen a few real key moments this year where I think it's been more exciting. Um, So I just hope it's closer next year in terms of performance from the relative team so we can kind of see a more sustained championship battle. Now, you regularly interview and speak to team principals in your role, and many of them have actually changed since the season ended, (laughs) uh, whichever team they're with or whether they're still in Formula One. I mean, it's a tough job, isn't it, for someone to to run a Formula One team? Oh, yes, yeah, it's, it's a massive job. And um, well, obviously Alan will be far better experienced to answer this question. But just dealing with them um, from a journalist to, to interviewee perspective, you can often see the pressure that they're under on weekends where it's been more challenging. Or you can see them in great form, particularly like Christian Horner has been this year when things are all going really well. So you can really see how it goes up and down over the course of the season and how they maybe prepare answers or really think about what they're going to say, depending on how tense it is. You know, Mattia Bonotto was always quite well spoken this year because there were so many things going on behind the scenes at Ferrari that obviously he wanted to make sure he was saying the right thing. So, yeah, it's I don't think personally I could ever do that job because it's so intense, but it's an impressive role. And um, it's I think that's why we've seen over the last few years quite a lot of stability within that role. And that's why it was such a shock to see so many um, changes, because it's not like you can go and pluck one out like you can in the Premier League. It's a little bit different in Formula One. It certainly is, isn't it? We're saying um, between a few few of us as friends that there's no kind of conveyor belt of just uh, people waiting in the wings that are obvious. It, it's uh, it's a very different kind of uh, industry in that sense. But uh, rather than just focusing on the team principles, we're looking at the teams as a whole today. So let's take a look at the shortlist that our listeners and readers are voting on. And the criteria for this one for Team of the Year reads, no team ran a perfect campaign in 2022, but we're looking for the one that demonstrated the most collective spirit and success. Uh, so the list in alphabetical order, because you've got to find a way of ordering them, uh, is Alpine, Ferrari, Mercedes and Red Bull. What do you make of those four candidates, Alan? Is there anyone else you'd have had in there yourself from Formula One this year? I think there was definitely uh, very good candidates, first of all, for very different reasons. Each one of them, I think, has got some sort of spirit and feeling you could certainly hook them into that. Um, if I go down, I have to be honest with you, I really liked Haas's determination and uh, the pole position that Kevin Magnussen got and just the reaction and everything else. I'm not sure it would have brought them into that particular scope, but it was definitely a highlight for me. Um, but you know, now as they've came out, I'm starting to sort of build up my sort of thought process in alphabetical order as well. <laughs> and uh, Alpine, without doubt, had their troubles. You know, they were, uh, it wouldn't have been a plain sailing year for them, but they had two drivers that were pitted against each other. Sometimes got a bit maybe too close, but uh, ultimately they had two drivers that were scoring well at the end of the season and brought them into the position that they got uh, at the checkered flag. Yeah, I guess in many ways, Lawrence, it's no surprise that we are talking about the top four in the Constructors' Championship as well. What what do you make of the uh, shortlist there? 
Yeah, I think it's really fair because if you look at the rest of the field, um, Alan mentioned Haas. I think lots of teams had peaks, but they didn't have that consistency that um, those four did. Even with all the reliability issues that Alpine had, they still got the points in the end, didn't they? And they ultimately comfortably beat McLaren to fourth in the constructors. You know, I was really impressed with Alfa Romeo at certain points this season, you know, sixth, their best performance in, in 10 years. Um McLaren had their moments this year where they looked strong, but ultimately took a step back. So there were teams that kind of did show. Aston Martin had a really strong end, didn't they, to the year, particularly with Sebastian Vettel. So there were strong performances, but I think it's pretty clear cut. Those are the four best teams, in my opinion, as well. Well, those are the four that uh, our readers and listeners can go and vote for at motorsportmagazine.com and move quickly if you're going to do that, because voting ends on December the 22nd, as it does for all the categories, which I'll, I'll run through the list of later. Now, I feel like doing the shortlist in reverse today. Uh, I'm going to start with Red Bull. Uh, now, a dominant season, both championships were sewn up long before the end of the year. It's first constructors title since 2013. Just how impressed were you with the way Red Bull performed this year, Alan? It's very impressed. Um, obviously, they came out to the blocks with the new car, the new aero regulations, and they kind of got it about right. It was only Ferrari that maybe had the pace on them in qualifying at the beginning. Um, but because the car was very quick, they were able to understand that they needed to just make the window that little bit wider. And then they were quick on all occasions. And after the, I think they got that and Max got his head around it a little bit, then he was off and running. There was no question. So to some extent, yes, they did a very, very good job as a team. But I think their job as a team was actually done producing the car to go to the first test, as opposed to during the season itself. Because during the season itself, it was execution. And uh, they were able to do that pretty well from an extremely good starting base. Um, but I suppose the, the weak area, right, that Sergio wasn't able to be up there in a consistent basis on more occasions uh, he was sometimes, for various different reasons, and it's not pointing a finger at Sergio by any stretch of the imagination, but I would have said if there's a weak point in their season, they would look at how do we bring Sergio into the mix more often. And uh, that would be probably the, the one thing that they'll be thinking about over the weekend. Well, yeah, you mentioned though, about the car they built. I mean, how tough will it have been to follow up on last year's title fight when they must have been juggling that car development with such a strong campaign this year when certain other teams, such as Ferrari, who we'll mention, maybe had a bit yeah. more ability to focus on this year's car? Well, certainly when you when you basically championship fight, you've got to go for it. That's the first thing. You can't sort of think, right, I'm going to back off and then hope it works out because these situations do not come around every year. You said it was seven years since the last Constructors title. You know, and so from that point of view, you've got to, the old adage, make hay while the sun shines. And uh, definitely that was a hard thing for Red Bull and Mercedes last year to try to run parallel developments. And we have to remember that the development for 2022 was huge because it was a complete new set of regulations. It wasn't just, you know, small adaptions. It was a new set of regulations. And I think that probably lay a little bit into Red Bull's creative genius, if you like, and uh, their ability to, to come out with something in that area. But uh, the fact that they did steal such a march, and also probably some of the others didn't quite get it right at the beginning uh, with their philosophy, then it probably extended the gap. However, it was Ferrari in them, and it, it was those were the two leaders in terms of pace, pure one-off pace at the beginning of the season. But at the end of the year, there was only one driver and one car, and that was obviously Red Bull and, and Max. 
Yeah, it was very impressive. But as Alan's already alluded to, Lawrence, it wasn't all easy going, um, not just with the teammate side of things, but also reli- reliability was an issue early on as well, wasn't it? Yeah, those first three races, Max didn't, he only finished two, uh, finished one of the first three races and admittedly won that race. But he must have been thinking at that point, um, the title might not be on this year because it was so shocking for that double reliability issue for Checo as well in Bahrain. And uh, Ferrari looked on song, didn't they? I think it was 46 points Charles led, uh, yeah. led by after three races. That, you know, that's huge for them. And, and I remember Max saying, I think it was after Imola, he was like, that's probably when he realised, oh, actually, it might be on this year. And things started to turn around. And that links into Alan's point. that I think Red Bull just found a way to get that car working in a, in a nice operating window. And from there, he was off and, and away. But um, yeah, really impressive performance, really. For Max, I think ultimately this year he's out, outperformed Checo. He dealt with the way that the car changed slightly through the year. Checo had that high point. He won Monaco. He had some real high points early on and he actually looked quite a strong contender. I think even at one point we were thinking, could he have a, a tilt at the title? And then obviously the car changed a little bit and he just couldn't quite adapt to it. So it was interesting how the season kind of unfolded, but it just shows really the talent that Max has got that he was able to adapt in that way. Just one interesting point as well, you know, we're talking about uh, Max being one of the greats. Now, I think one of the factors is the season is significantly longer now. And so therefore, there's more time to recover from these situations where maybe you do have reliability issues. And from a strategic point of view, as long as you know you've got the pace in the car and you've got the capability to fix those reliability issues, then it's better from a team to go in that risk assessment way as well instead of necessarily building something that they know is bulletproof, but maybe doesn't have the pace over a long, longer season. Now, if we put one further question to you both about Red Bull, it's the nice and easy one. But uh, does the cost cap controversy factor into your thinking in terms of team of the year? Um, for me, no, it doesn't. <laughs> I don't think. I think because, you know, they've handed it out. They've got their penalty. They've, they've been given it. And that's what it is. We'll never know ultimately what impact it had on this year's car, whether you know whether or not it made a difference. You could argue it probably did, but I mean, we need to kind of move on from that. I think that ultimately the job that they did was so significant, I think. And Red Bull have traditionally in um, recent years done very well when regulation changes have happened. They've and they've had tended to have slow starts of the year. So the fact that they got it all done pretty well this year. They made the most of the car, even after the unreliability, and they cured those problems quite quickly. I think that's pretty impressive. But then again, I guess we've got to wait until they submit their budget for next year and see if they've got over again. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would suggest that uh, it did make a difference. It has to have made a difference somewhere. There's no question about it. Well, um, but at the same time as well, these cost caps, have, it will be an evolution over the course of time as well, how they are understood and how they're worked. Um, I think I would just definitely agree that uh, the speed and performance they had was more than just any cost cap reference. There was no question. And uh, the confidence that Max had had nothing to do with it. That was just purely his abilities. And that is uh, a tenth and a half in the bank over a long race weekend, that's for sure. Yeah, he he was uh, certainly their, their strong point as well. And the driver is certainly a part of the team. But if we drop one position in the championship, we come to... Ferrari, who started the season so well, but then almost ended up scraping to second place. But did that strong start unfairly impact the way we view the team this season, Alan? I mean, after a number of tough years, it did deliver a very quick yeah. car. Yeah, it did. And it had a very good lineup in my in my thoughts for uh, the driver side of things. I think uh, they've got a good pairing. Uh, 
a young, energetic pairing, both very clever, both able to adapt and work within the, I would say, the politics that are obviously there of a big Formula One team and especially Ferrari. Um, but to me, it was all of the miscues and small operational mistakes and things that uh, were, were what let them down, not the speed and performance and the victories at the beginning of the year. You know, that definitely didn't let them down. That was a highlight. And so I think it's a frustrating year for a Ferrari because I wouldn't say they could have won the championship, even if everything had run smoothly, but they could definitely have kept the pressure on. And that is not, and we have to be frank about it, it's not just down to, uh, to the team because Charles had a couple of incidents on his own. Remember Paul Ricard just, you know, an hour and a half along the road from here where he was in for a surefire victory and threw the car off the road. And these things happen, though, but they happen when a system is under a lot of pressure. When a system is flowing and everybody's confident and knows they've got something, uh, then they are, I would say, able to deliver a Red Bull type of performance. Or McLaren last year when they were batting above what was maybe expected. When you know you've got a chance, but the pressure's on you, that's when these mistakes come. And I think they just multiplied themselves through the season and ultimately it cost Bonotto his job. Yeah, I mean, Lawrence, I was going to bring that up for you, actually, the fact that Mattia Bonotto ended up leaving Ferrari. I mean, were there too many mistakes this year for Ferrari to win this category? Or um, do we look at where the team's come from, certainly over the last two years, uh, as such a big turnaround? That there, there's still momentum there, isn't there, for Ferrari? Yeah, there's definitely still momentum. I agree that there were too many mistakes this year for them to win, in my opinion, this category, because <clears throat> even with the best car, they did the hard job, arguably, which is producing the fasting, and they were just unable to to get the most out of it consistently over the course of the weekend. But I also do think it is important to look at how far they've come. Statistically, this was the best season they've had in years. Um, they've ended the championship second, which is significantly better than where they were last year. Their goal or their target from the chairman was you need to significantly improve and move into a, a world title contending team. Admittedly, they couldn't sustain that all the way through, but they did that. I kind of feel like Mattia Bernotto has got a lot of reason to feel aggrieved by the, the, the their kind of reasoning behind choosing to part ways with him at the end of this year. Um, and I think it's an interesting one that they've gone for Fred and we'll see how that works out. He's a, he's a great team boss. Um, but I think at this moment in time, you need stability. You know, Christian Horner, how long has he been in the job? Toto Wolff, how long has he been in the job? And now they're, one of their main rivals has just got a new a, a change at the top and it's going to take time for them to settle in. So... I think this has been a good year for Ferrari. I think that the very fact that Charles and Carlos and the team are upset shows how far they've come, you know, how they've reset their goals and, and what is possible. Um, I just hope that there's been enough in the car. There's been enough work done behind the scenes that that doesn't give them a, a, an issue at the start of next year. Well, you've both kind of hinted at some of these things, but there was the driver errors that we had at times. There was a spell of reliability issues as well when I think they had to turn down the power unit to make sure that they didn't have recurring incidents. But there were also some massive highlights if we think of the season opening one-two, um, how strong they were at the first part of the season. Silverstone for Carlos, Austria for Charles. Where do you think Ferrari maybe were, were strongest? What was the, the best moment for Ferrari or best aspect of Ferrari this year? Alan, I'll let you take that one first. Ah, that's, for me, that's simple. It's qualifying. Their one lap pace was the thing that gave them a headline, but it also gave them a, a kick in the tail. And it was something that if you just look at the, you know, the front row starts qualifying in Q3, they were very, very good. And uh, that is always something that I felt. If you start in the front row, you've got raw speed in the car. It's then trying to make sure you do it for, you know, 75 laps or whatever the race is. 
Um, however, I think that became a little bit of a blastoplast, if you like, over the season that they weren't able to produce it in the races as often as they needed to. Um, obviously, they worked the tyre pretty hard, and uh, that was something that uh, they struggled with as the season progressed. And we've got to remember, as the season progressed, you go to different races and you go to different style of circuits, different track temperatures, different loading and things like that. And it, and it has its own effect as well. So there are circuits that definitely fitted the Ferrari style of car. Um, and that was maybe some of the highlights you mentioned. Austria is one of them, I think. And then on the flip side of it, you've got uh, the, the other part of it, which is uh, the fact that some of the times it just didn't fit. However, for me, the qualifying was the one that uh, they certainly got right. It was the race that scores the big points. Lawrence, any highlights for you that stand out? Strengths of Ferrari this year? Well, I think it's the driver pair. And I think Alan kind of hinted at it right at the beginning. Mm -hmm. I think that together they are a very strong lineup and Charles in qualifying he made the most of the car he delivered under pressure he got the most poles this season Carlos started to kind of get some poles under his belt this year he obviously got that first win and I think he had that really strong second half of the year as well he needs to cut out a few mistakes because that kind of set, kept setting him back every time he made a mistake it took him two three four races to catch back up if he can kind of cut that out next year they've got a very strong pairing I think it was important that both of them tried to to stay calm. They didn't get irritated. Maybe Charles showed some signs towards the end, but that's understandable because, you know, the title had gone from him. But as long as they can continue with that, continue working together, that's another thing that they seem to do. They get on well off track, but genuinely they do get on well behind the scenes. They are sharing data. You know, they are. there's, there's nothing there that's holding either of them back. So I think that was, I know, I think they form part of the team. You know, that I think that is one of the, the real strengths of Ferrari this year. Yeah, and if we look at it, that they've helped move Ferrari forward from last year to this year uh, as a partnership. Now, there was another team that showed clear progress moving forward, and that was Mercedes, but it had to do so from a very lowly starting position. Uh, how surprised were you, Lawrence, that it struggled so much at the start of this year? Well, considering how well they've adapted to regulation changes in the past, you know, they've dominated this sport for the last decade. We had no reason to think that they wouldn't do the same this year so I was genuinely shocked that they did but what was more interesting was that it took them so long relatively to get on top of their problems and I think a that just shows what a great job they've done in the past beforehand b it just shows how hard this sport is anyway and I think see with the lack of running that you get these days to try and alleviate some of these problems you can do what you want in the wind tunnel but you actually need track time and there isn't very much of it and we've had sprints this year so you haven't always had fp1s there's been so many factors that actually just really stunted Mercedes' ability to come through. But then they ended the year essentially the second best team. They were genuinely at points in certain circuits fighting Red Bull, who had dominated this season. So I think that kind of that point in the curve was the most impressive thing, arguably, of the whole season. It was just obviously they came from so far back that they just couldn't recover. It's amazing to think they were kind of mired in the midfield, right, at the start of this year. And then there's George winning in Brazil with one race to go. Yeah, I mean, Alan, we became used to seeing Mercedes leading the way since 2014. This whole V6 hybrid era has been dominated by Mercedes. Does a year like this show just how hard it is to maintain such a level? I think it, it does. And it also shows that you're only as good as your last race. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past. You've got to keep on delivering. And I'm sure that Mercedes didn't know where page two on the timing screens were, <laughs> you know, because they had never been there. But uh, suddenly they were mired into it, as you said. And, uh, you know, the fact that as 
that they weren't able to develop their way out of what is an inherent lack of understanding of the car at the end of the day. Um, obviously showed that there was a bit of frustration in there at times. You know, I was surprised, very honestly, that they stuck together so tightly to be able to work their way through it. And I was surprised as well with uh, Lewis because I kind of maybe expected Lewis just because, you know, he was so dominant in the championships up till, up till then uh, to have maybe a march in terms of understanding the car. But on thinking about it, he's came from a car that did everything he wanted to suddenly something that did everything he didn't want. Whereas for George, he came from a car that did everything he didn't want to a car that did something that he wanted, but maybe not everything. And mm. so for, it was maybe an easier transition, actually, for George to come into that car than it was for Lewis, because it was an upgrade for George. It was a downgrade for Lewis, in a way, in terms of uh, all of the feedback factors. But the fact that uh, Lewis was able to then get as much out of it, if not more, in the races, and the car was a good race car, we have to say, but the team keeping it all together as one unit, I thought was a very, very impressive thing because it's very easy in these circumstances to see fractions in the team and uh, then for it to actually become a negative influence in energy instead of a positive one. And it could only work to get that result in Brazil if there was a positive influence in it. And that, I think, was a very, very big highlight for them and will make them better for the future. Yeah, I mean, we certainly saw them develop well as well during the year. With the Austin update, seemed to be the one that that brought the car into the fight at the front and helped deliver that win in Brazil. But I want to pick up on something you mentioned about George and uh, the way his season went. Uh, Mister Consistency became a bit of a nickname for him. But we can probably look at that overall, can't we? With Mercedes, it, okay, George in the early part of the year was getting all the top fives, but as a team. Was this a team that maximised what it had at its disposal, even if the car itself wasn't that good? I think they basically did. They got more out of the early races than they should have done. But that was not because they were over-delivering. It's because others were under-delivering. You know, we talked about Red Bull reliability issues. We've had some crashes uh, from Carlos and the Ferrari. We've had other situations going on up and down the field. But they were able to actually basically get the best out of what they had and then to chip away working at it. Um, but, you know, when you talk about it, I think George fitted in very well. Uh, he understood what his role was in the game and uh, he played it extremely strongly. And he deserved his victory at the end of the year, no question about it. For me, he definitely deserved that victory because he put in the, in the legwork. But uh, the two drivers, and we're talking about Ferrari drivers working together, and I'm sure has got, Lawrence has got an opinion on this, the two drivers working together was one of the stable points that allowed them to build and uh, develop a car through the course of the year. And I think that would have been quite a challenge, perhaps, for Lewis to do that, really, because he's obviously got a youngster coming in, arguably going to take his spot in the in, in the medium to long term. And it would have been tough for him to do that. And there was a lot of talk about how he took the more experimental setups in the early part of the year as they were trying to get an understanding of that car. It made sense. He was the more experienced driver at that team. But it was, I think it was difficult for him. And also for George to come in, having been the, the reserve, the test driver, sat in the meetings beforehand as the guy, the rookie, I guess, and Lewis as the hero. And for him to come in and really step it up, I think both of them have adapted to what is the new world now. I think it's really impressive. And I want to pick up a little bit on what Alan said about Mercedes making the most of the, their opportunities. I think that's the difference really, isn't it, between them and Ferrari? Like they've, they're polar opposites this year. And 
we've seen sometimes in the past when you've put Mercedes under pressure, um, they've made mistakes. It didn't happen very often, but we've seen that. Whereas this year, they really didn't. And I remember talking to quite a few senior technical people over the course of this year, and they never seemed worried. They never seemed panicked. They were frustrated that they didn't understand what was going on, but they never seemed panicked. And I think that's quite unusual in Formula One across a, the, the paddock to see that kind of thing. And the way that they've reacted, I think it's really down a lot to Toto's Wolf's no-blame culture. We've talked about that at Ferrari, but I think it genuinely is the case at Mercedes. Like they're not, no one's going to feel worried for their jobs. And that potentially is just easier for them to go, oh, actually, I've made a mistake here. We've gone the wrong way. Let's go down this way. And I think that probably helped once they worked out what was wrong for them to kind of accelerate that development program. Yeah, and On that put... particular point, if I can just jump in very, very quickly, I think uh, having dominated the previous era up till now and always produced a good car does allow you a certain amount of grace period. I think if this situation maybe continued for two or three seasons, as it has done with other teams in the past when they've dropped off you know, their high points, then uh, it becomes more difficult. But without doubt, they have got as well an understanding from the ownership uh, that they, you know, this is a hard game. And as much as we all want to win every year, we can't all win every year. And you can see that roller coaster happening where teams are dominant for a period of time. But uh, I'm sure this hard season, without doubt, for driver and team will actually be more beneficial than some of the dominant ones have had in the past. Yeah, and it's it's funny we talk about how tough these seasons have been uh, for Ferrari at stages, Mercedes at stages. But when we move on to the final team in the shortlist, and that's Alpine, they'd love some of these problems, I imagine, with still winning races. <laughs> but it, it's a team that some would maybe say is a surprise in this category. But from a race team perspective, it's been very impressive with how it executes its weekends. Fourth in the championship, a big part of that due to something you said earlier, Alan, having two drivers scoring regularly. What did you make of the team this year? Well, they had some difficult points because obviously leadership changes and bits and pieces going on. Um, I saw a great tweet from them uh, about a week ago saying uh, we're uh, team principal. You've been in the job five months and you're, or seven months and uh, you're the fifth oldest team principal in his position. I thought that was pretty cool. But it, it just showed you what a roller coaster season it was for them. Clearly, it is, uh, it's a long-standing team. I've known them in two iterations as Benetton in the 90s, and then obviously as Renault and now rebranded as Alpine. So I think the core of the team is pretty good. Um, but they're in a position where they're fighting in and around that place and to try to maximise to get to that fourth place is very, very important for them. But they were able to, towards the end of the year, get, uh, I would say, two feisty drivers who definitely had their time on track together. And you know, a few radio messages were bouncing back and forward. Um, but they were able to get them to work in harmony as opposed to against each other. And that was absolutely critical because, you know, McLaren maybe didn't quite perform to the levels. Um, you had also as well Alfa Romeo dropping off towards the end of the season. And so therefore there was an opportunity. And when these opportunities come back, you've got to grab it. And I have to say, I think they did a pretty good job to grab it. I think it will be difficult to repeat it again in the future. So therefore, even more important, to achieve it when you can have that opportunity. Yeah, I mean, we've got to look at it that it was the first year of the full budget cap and Alpine felt it was in the right position. It was right size for that. Uh, but there were a number of changes, as you alluded to, Alan, ahead of the season. And that didn't stop it beating McLaren that was a much more settled team in the Constructors' Championship. And Lawrence, if it wasn't for reliability issues, Alpine would have been much further clear. Mm. 
Oh, for sure. But I do think that that's the approach that they took. I remember Laurent Rossi saying right at the beginning of the season, we're going to take risks and we're going to go through it and we're going to push the car. And if there is failures, then so be it. And I think if you'd probably asked him maybe halfway through the season, he'd probably get me maybe regretting that. I know Esteban and Fernando particularly were frustrated by it. If you asked Fernando, he'd say he'd lost 70 or 80 points to um, unreliability this year. And that would have obviously put them well clear of McCann if he'd, um, if he'd scooped all of those up. But actually, that kind of strategy worked because on the days when they were very strong, it put them so clear in the midfield that they got big hauls of points. They weren't just, you know, scrapping around for the, the smaller points. And that makes a real difference, I think, if you can get some real big points hauls. Um, but what I've really been impressed with um, with Alpine this year is the development curve. So we there's a new feature this year called Show and Tell where all the teams have to roll their cars out. Uh, twice a weekend to show all of the developments that they make and so I've done a few of those this year and talking to Alan Permain and he you know point out the smallest of update on the car but they had something new at every single Grand Prix whether that's you know half a tenth to several tenths they had something new but critically it delivered what the wind tunnel and CFD had said it was going to do and I think there's very few teams on the grid who would be able to say they were relentlessly developing in the way that Alpine did so that says, A, they manage their budget very well. B, it means that the team that they got back at base, Alan talked about the very stable team, you know, that a lot of people have been there for a long time. That will help for sure. Um, and even with that, um, even with that, Fernando obviously lost so many points that it could have been so much better. Alan, the one thing I do want to ask, though, is does the Oscar Piastri saga that was all off track lose the team any points this year? Or is it impressive that it still performed on track despite that distraction? It definitely loses some points for um, their being in control of their own destiny, if you like, because they were in, the drivers were in control of their destiny to some extent. Um, but the fact that the race operations team, you know, Alan Permain basically heading that up, uh, were able to take that out of their mind and fixate on the job in hand on that day, I thought was pretty good because. There's so much talk going around on a Grand Prix weekend, especially when it's focused on your team. And there's so many interviews going on that it's very easy to get sidetracked from the job in hand, which is actually racing on the Sunday. And so I would have said that that was probably a, a neutral from this particular point of view, but uh, definitely it'll be an area that will be tightening up the contracts in the future. OK, well, to wrap it up then, Alan, who are you picking from that shortlist? But I have to be honest with you, I'd probably lean towards Mercedes and this because of uh, their cohesiveness to fight back from a very difficult start yeah, and uh, to produce a race win at the end. And how about you, Lawrence? Uh, you know what? I think I had a different answer at the start of this podcast. So I suppose this podcast has been useful, maybe, in trying to understand who has had a strong season and who hasn't. At the start, I was going to say Red Bull, but actually thinking about it, who is the best team? I think I would agree with Anne and Mercedes but pushed very very closely by Alpine because I, I just think the job that they've done this year considering where they are in the ultimate pecking order has been incredible but you can't fault a team that started in the midfield ended the year winning races within the first year for a budget cap I, I think that's a phenomenal performance so um, I, yeah I, I'm going to say Mercedes edge Alpine Wow I will admit 
they were not the answers I was expecting from you too, but that's great to hear. And listeners, you don't have to agree. Don't worry. So now we've given you your four options for the team of the year in 2022. You can head over to motorsportmagazine.com to cast your vote, where you can also vote on driver of the year, best race and track and best overtake. Plus there's the hall of fame shortlist you can vote on as well. But remember you've got until the 22nd of December to get your vote in. My thanks to Alan McNish and Lawrence Barreto for joining us. We have special shows on each shortlist category, wherever you get your podcasts from. So take a listen and get your votes in. Thanks for joining us. Bye for now.